0: Let's open in the Word of God this morning and read uh, two Old Testament passages. The first is 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12, where we'll read the first 14 verses of the chapter. David has sinned with Bathsheba, has murdered her husband, and now the Lord has given them a child. Or, or the Lord, uh, she is, she's finished her mourning for her husband. David has taken her for his wife, and the Lord has given them a child. And then we read this in Second Samuel 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children, it did eat of his own meat or food, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter." And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb, and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house, and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel, and of Judah. And if it had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such... Things, or many more things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son." And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die, howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. The other passage that we want to read is from Psalm 51, and the heading of that psalm is a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy lovingkindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before thee, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise." Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion, build thou the walls of Jerusalem, then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness, with burnt offering, and whole burnt offering, then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. And consider this morning, Lord's Day 21, question 56 on page 12 in the back of the Psalter, where we confess, I believe, the forgiveness of sins. Question 56, what believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that or so that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. There's a connection, beloved, between the words of the Apostles' Creed here, I believe, the forgiveness of sins and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as we come to it this morning. In the sacrament, God makes a visible Promise to us that on account of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, He forgives us all our sins. And that's the word of the catechism today and the sermon this morning, the same word that God puts before us in the supper. So this morning, you first hear in the preaching God's promise of forgiveness, and then you come to the sacrament. And God repeats that promise in visible signs to confirm that your sins are forgiven. Let's consider this morning, I believe the forgiveness of sins will answer three questions. Which sins? On what basis? And then where is that experienced? And What I want to do this morning is, in each point, look at the Catechism, and then look at its parallel in the psalm that we read, Psalm 51. So first... Which sins? And the catechism answers that for us in two words, really. That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins. It's personal. And that's the way that the catechism is expressed. The believer's personal confession. My Savior... My only comfort in life and death, my sins. When we come to the doctrine of sin and the teaching of sin in the catechism and in the Bible, this is not general. We're not just talking about the sins of humanity, fallen humanity. We're not talking about the sins of those who are unbelievers in this wicked world. We're not pointing our fingers, which we like so often to do, at others and saying their sins. He's a sinner. He hasn't confessed this. He hasn't repented of that. My sins. That's the personal note this morning. Which sins? My sins. And then you notice in the Catechism that rather than it enumerating to us what all of our sins are, my sins and my confessing all the different sins that I've committed, the Catechism will instead emphasize to me, in my experience, my sins. Very often when it comes to the confession of sin, we think of all the things that we have perhaps done, all the different ways that we sin, and certainly That's a biblical way to look at sins. There are the sins of our past, sins of youth, remember not. There are sins of the present, daily sins. There are sins that we will commit in the future. There are sins of omission, where we neglect to do something. There are sins of commission, where we in rebellion go against something that God has commanded. There are sins in our deeds, not only, but also in our words and in our thoughts. And all these we will lay out in confession before God. But these are the things that we have done. In my experience, there's something deeper than that. And that's what the Catechism calls our attention to. My sin is not just in what I have done, but my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long. Doesn't that bring home to you this morning the reality of sin, not only my sin, but now my corrupt nature and my constant struggle. I need forgiveness not only for what I've done, but I need forgiveness for who I am, my corrupt nature. And there's this constant inescapable struggle with sin, which is a reminder again and again My sins. As the Canons of Dort puts it, this is a daily cause for humility and turning to God. That constant struggle is a daily cause for humility and turning to God. Which sins? I believe my sins are forgiven. What are your sins? This morning, the declaration of the gospel to you as you confess your sins is your sins are forgiven, all forgiven. And about that forgiveness, there are two things again to notice in the, in the catechism, two things for us to see. And the first is this, that God will no more remember my sins, and then the other is this, but he will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What does God do with my sins? He will no more remember them. He forgets them. He forgets my sins. Can God forget my sins? Is that forgiveness? When I forgive somebody else, is that what I must do? Forget their sins? Well, of course, we all know that in the ultimate sense, God cannot forget. He knows, doesn't he? He's the omniscient God. And there's nothing that he's unaware of, nothing that's hidden from his sight, nothing that he cannot in a moment recall. He doesn't forget. But this is forgiveness, isn't it? That God makes a decision not to remember. That's forgiveness. A decision of the will. That even though something is there and obvious and real, he will not remember it. He will not hold it against us. That's forgiveness. The gracious act of God in which he wills or decides not to look at my sin. That's forgiveness. And that's important for us to remember in regard to forgiving one another as well. It's this that I not forget in the sense that it never crosses my mind again, but when it crosses my mind I've forgiven it, and I choose. I make a decision not to let that stand between me and the one who has sinned. That's the negative here. God will no more remember, and certainly that's biblical language in Jeremiah chapter 31 and and verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. And God I said, makes a decision to do that. It says in another place that he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. He puts them in a place where he will not see them again. That God will no more remember my sins. Positively, forgiveness here is to is this, that God graciously imputes to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't look at me alone. If thou, Lord, should mark our sins, who then could stand? But he sees me in Jesus Christ. We could say, he sees me through the filter of Jesus Christ, in which all that would ruin the picture, all sin, is filtered out by Jesus Christ. He sees me, the catechism says elsewhere, as though I never had had nor committed any sin. All my actions, all my nature, all my sinful struggles, God does not hold them against me. In fact, as a merciful God, he comes alongside me so that I can tackle those sins with his help. He imputes to me the perfect righteousness of Christ. So what does the psalm say about these things, sin and forgiveness? Well, let's start at the beginning of the psalm, and immediately there we have the beautiful pictures of forgiveness. David begins with this great petition, have mercy upon me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out. All my transgressions. And then verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then verse 9 again, hide thy face from my sin and blot out all my transgressions. Don't you see the multiplication of ideas there that have to do with forgiveness that explain to us God's forgiveness? Blot out all my transgressions, a blot. What is it? A blot is a, a, a large gob of dark ink that you put over something. And, and the idea here is of somebody who's writing down numbers, carefully keeping track of debt. And they've written a number down, and they don't want the number on the page anymore. So what do we do? We scribble over and over, but you really can't hide it. But a gob of ink, that will cover it up so that it can never be read again. Blot out all my transgressions. And in verse 9, hide thy face from my sins. This is again the idea of God willing, deciding to put our sins in a place where he will never see them again so that in verse 2, forgiveness is described with the words of washing and cleansing. Our sins are as dirty stains and God removes all our guilty stains and when he clothes us with the Righteousness of Jesus Christ, it's clothing in pure white, without stain, washed, clean. And this forgiveness is described in the psalm as this, something that God applies to us in our experience, something that we could say God wants us to know about. And in the psalm, as David's repentance is described... He comes into a greater experience of that forgiveness. He grows in his assurance. And that's paralleled in 2 Samuel 12. The Lord also hath forgiven thy sin. Don't you see that here in verse 7? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear gladness and joy. That the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Which sins? First, the sins of those who are repentant. That's very evident in this. In in all of Scripture. For example, 1 John 1 8 through 10 says this: if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Unconfessed sin is the same as saying, I don't need forgiveness. And then we're lying to ourselves about our sin and our sinfulness. And in this story of David, that's very evident. Which sins does God forgive? Sins confessed, sins acknowledged sins repented of, sins turned from. And isn't that the great burden that David experienced up until the visit of Nathan the prophet and the declaration from Nathan that his sins were forgiven? David expresses that in Psalm 32, a a parallel psalm written at the same time during his life. And he says in verse 3, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. In Psalm 51, he calls them broken bones. And then he says this, day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and my iniquity a night hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity, the guilt of my sin. My sin. That's the way we started this morning. My sin. Not other sins, not a general idea of sin. Certainly, David understood the sinfulness of man, but he wouldn't see and he wouldn't acknowledge, and he was under the weight of the hand of God's wrath till he confessed his sin. And so, Nathan says when David says in 2 Samuel 12 I have sinned the Lord also hath forgiven that's the declaration of the gospel to repentant sinners this morning who come the Lord also has forgiven But now, as we think about this question, what sins, and look at the psalm together, there are more things that we can say. And the, and the first and the most obvious thing is this, that God forgives the worst of sins. God forgives the worst of sins. Look at what David had done. It wasn't just a glance of lust, but it was adultery. He sent for this woman. And then it was a hiding of his sin, and not just a hiding of his sin by denying it, but by taking a man's life to make it look like the child that was conceived through his sinful conduct was the child of this man. And then acting for years as though nothing had happened. And all that time, covering his sin by his show of righteousness as king, which was hypocrisy in the end. And you think of the indignant response of David when Nathan tells him the story, the parable of the rich man and the poor man. And he says that rich man's got to die. And before he dies, he's going to give back fourfold. Thou art the man. And God forgave adultery, murder, lying, hypocrisy. The Lord also hath forgiven thee. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, there's a verse that we often overlook. This is Mark three twenty-eight and 29. We overlook the message of verse 28 because we get hung up on verse 29. So Mark three twenty-eight: Verily I say unto thee, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith they shall blaspheme. We get hung up because the next verse talks about the sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. what's Jesus saying? What's Jesus saying as he gathered the publicans and sinners around him? What's Jesus saying as he gathered the notorious uh, women of of, of the city who had been harlots, who touched him and came to him, and he's telling them, God forgives you. The greatest of sins, confessed, are forgiven. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. To repentance. Which sins? In Psalm 51, David enumerates those sins, and he uses a a variety of synonyms, words that all talk about sin. First in verse 1, he calls sins transgressions. A transgression is going across a forbidden line crossing the boundaries into the area of sin. It is deliberate, it is presumptuous. And David is confessing this about his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. He knew it was wrong. It was an act of rebellion. Second word, iniquity. Iniquity refers to the crookedness of sin, that sin is contrary to God, and that sin opens us up to the wrath of God. We're guilty. David's acknowledging, I deserve death. The wages of sin, death. And then a third word that he uses here in verse 2 is the word sin, which has the idea of missing the mark. In Romans 3, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the purpose of our existence. God created us for his own glory. And every last one falls short of it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My sin. That is my transgression, my iniquity, my failure to glorify God. And then in verses 4 and 5, there are two more things that are said about sin. And these are areas where we often try to minimize our own sin. What we try to do with sin, we try to quickly fix it, to quickly provide solutions to it, to quickly talk to the one who might be offended by it, to make it sound like it's not such a big deal. And so David says in verse 4, against thee, thee only have I sinned. Certainly there are others against whom he sinned, Bathsheba, Uriah, and as king, the entire nation of Israel. And the prophet Nathan points that out to him in Second Samuel 14 as well. When he comes to him, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, when he comes to him and he says, Thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And David confesses against thee, the only. Have I sinned? He's not saying, well, as long as I confess it to God, I don't need to write it with others. No, he's saying this that in the end, I need to be right with God. And in the end, God, the righteous and the just one, is the one against whom I've sinned. I've sinned against thy grace, I've sinned against thy holiness. And I've opened myself up before God to punishment. And then, verse five again, we try to minimize sin. We think of it as a momentary lapse of judgment. That's not really who I am, that's not really how I am. I just lost it for a little while. Otherwise, I've done a lot of good things. David says, no, this is who I am. That's why I've sinned. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not excusing, not minimizing, but he's saying this comes from the depths of who I am by nature, my corrupt nature against which I have to Struggle all my life long. He acknowledged, he owned not only his sin, but his sinfulness. God blots out, he hides from view all our sins. I believe the forgiveness of sins. When we say that, are we just saying that we believe this happens with sins? What is the object of your faith? When you say, I believe, who are you looking at? And the answer, of course, is Christ. I believe in Christ there's forgiveness of sins. And that's the basis and the foundation of the truth of the forgiveness of our sins. And here we can really go beyond just the idea of forgiveness of sins and speak of the marvelous truth of justification. Forgiveness of sins is experienced only in the way of repentance, but the foundation and the reason for our forgiveness is what Christ has accomplished for us in our justification. And that's what's pointed to here as the foundation of the forgiveness of sins in the Catechism. by by the Catechism's reference to the two aspects of the obedience of Jesus Christ. What we refer to as his active obedience and his passive obedience. His passive obedience does not refer to the fact that he did nothing, he was passive, but to his passion. There is the obedience of his life, in which he kept all the commandments of God perfectly, and then there is the obedience of his death, in which he suffered for our sins and those are the foundation for our righteousness before God in his active obedience he obeyed the law in our place and you see that in the catechism when it says that he will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ the righteousness of Christ that is his perfect obedience And we see that it's talking about justification in the next phrase when it says, I will never be condemned before the tribunal of God. It's a legal idea. And God accounts to me what Christ has done. God accounts to me what Christ has done in his perfect fulfillment and obedience to the law of God so that God sees me as if I had perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of the law. More than just payment, isn't it? It's perfection. Perfection. And that's the beauty of justification. And then his passive obedience, his suffering for our place. And that's in the the first line of the catechism, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction. He paid the price. And God sees me as justified in Jesus Christ, never condemned. And that's the great benefit that's promised to us this morning in the sacrament as we come to partake of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I'll never be condemned. I'm a partaker of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As I come believing, God applies that to me. Forgiven. Righteous. Never condemned. I believe in Christ. He's the object of my faith. And we see that also in Psalm 51, and we we mustn't miss that here. This is Old Testament, but it's prophetic, isn't it? And the same foundation is laid there in the Old Testament Scripture in prophecy, as is set before us very clearly in the New Testament, and that foundation is Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in his suffering and his death. You see that first in verse 1 of Psalm 51, when David pleads the loving kindness and the multitude of the tender mercies of God. Loving kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, and it refers to God's covenant faithfulness. And in that covenant faithfulness, God promised to David, Psalm 89 and Second Samuel 7, that he would send a son to sit on his throne who would be the everlasting king. Messianic covenant promise. And when David pleads the mercy of God and the loving kindness of God, that's what he has in view, that Christ will come. And we see that in the psalm in the references to blood and sacrifice. He says in verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. And then he says in in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is the the branch that they used to spread the blood on the door at the great Passover feast once a year, and on account of being covered by the blood, the angel of death passed over. The judgment of God did not come. And that's what David has in view here, the Passover and the covering of the blood of the lamb. And so he mentions in verse 16 and again in verse 19, sacrifice. In verse 16, and these two verses seem contradictory at first, thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. And then in verse 19, he says, God is pleased with the sacrifice, and they shall offer bullocks on thy altar. And the point is not that God didn't want sacrifice, but he wanted them to come with sacrifice with believing hearts, sincere. The sacrifice of the Lord, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. And so this morning in the sacrament, too, which remembers the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God wants not just we're obeying him, we're doing this, we're going through the motions, but a broken and a contrite heart. And then with the psalmist and with the catechism, Christ is the object of our faith. One more thing I want to call your attention to, and that's where forgiveness is experienced. And I want to point to the fact that this article of the Apostles' Creed is treated in the catechism and in the Apostles' Creed in connection with the church. It doesn't say, I believe God and the forgiveness of sins that he forgives. It doesn't say, I believe in Christ and his sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins in the Apostles' Creed, but it says this I believe the Holy Spirit, so it's talking about the application of forgiveness, and I believe the church and the communion of saints, and in connection with that, the forgiveness of sins. The experience of forgiveness of sins comes in the church. Now, that does not mean, as Roman Catholicism teaches, that the church has ultimate authority to forgive. Sins Only God can forgive sins, the scripture says. But nevertheless, there is an important connection, a threefold connection. The first is this, that to the church, God has given the means of grace in which there's a declaration to the conscience of those who believe that you are forgiven. That's the declaration of the word of God to you this morning who come believing and confessing. Your sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. You have only to think of the beautiful words of Jesus in Matthew eleven, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Forgiveness. And that's what we come to hear in the worship and in the Word of God the declaration of the good news of the gospel to believing hearts, God forgives. The second connection to the church is that God has given the keys of the kingdom to the church and in the exercise of discipline there is a real opening and closing of the kingdom God has appointed to the elders to bring those who have sinned or who continue in sin to true repentance. And you and I acknowledge that even in our confession of faith when we, when we say we will submit to church authority. We need that kind of oversight and accountability in our lives because of the blindness to our own sin. And that's what God has committed in the church to the elders. And again... That's even what David needed. Think of David. David. What did he need? He needed Nathan to come to him and say, David, you're the man. This is what you've done. And what a mercy God showed to him in that. Then third, we're experienced in the company of the forgiven. And here... We gather with sinners who need what we need, and what a beautiful thing that must have been to sit at Jesus' feet as a Zacchaeus or a Mary Magdalene and see there a Matthew and a woman taken in adultery. The Savior receives sinners such as me, such as we are, and the forgiven forgive. That's important, isn't it? Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, forgive as we forgive our debtors. And now that's what David expresses in the psalm as well, when in the joy of salvation, he wants to show to others what God has done for him so that sinners will be converted, that they will repent. So let's come to the sacrament this morning, believing and confessing these words, I believe the forgiveness of my sins. Amen. Father, we are thankful for this promise and the foundation of Jesus Christ. And now we come to the means of grace in the sacrament to have this affirmed to us in a visible way. Help us, Lord, to believe as we receive so that we're looking to Jesus Christ as we see our own sins.